That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. As Neil Armstrong so famously took his first steps and uttered these words that would be written into history books for generations to come. This is much like Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind and our four-part series on neuroendocrine tumours. Welcome back for part two where we discuss Everolimus and Sinitinib. Mikey, do you think that was too grand a claim comparing our wee little podcast to one of the most significant milestones in human history? No, in fact, I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say it's uh, it's not grand enough. I think Neil Armstrong was uh, retrospectively aping our podcast, not the other way around. And for those There's some who... time travel shenanigans going on here. Yeah, and for those who don't know our sense of humour, we're very, very, very much being totally serious. Mikey, De- Definitely. We, we never joke about Neil Armstrong and uh, how a copyright notice will be coming from our lawyers very soon. That's it. We his great. lawyers. Um, Mikey, we should, we're doctors. Mikey, why don't you give us the background? Yeah, so Josh very uh, succinctly went through most of this in our last episode. So this is just going to be a recap, a previously on, if you will. So we're talking about neuroendocrine tumours, which are rare tumours of the neuroendocrine system, which stands to reason. These are a heterogeneous group of tumours that most commonly occur in the gastrointestinal tract. And that's the main focus of a lot of the evidence that we are talking about. For the first episode and continuing on to this episode, we are talking about the lowest grade of neuroendocrine tumours, the low grade well differentiated and the intermediate grade well differentiated tumours. These are tumours that under a microscope their cells resemble the host or the original histology the most and they have they have a low rate of growth which is counted as a key 67 of less than 3% for low grade or 3 to 20% for intermediate grade. They also have low rates of mitoses per 10 high power fields low grade will have less than two mitoses per high power field and intermediate neuroendocrine tumors will have two to 20 mitoses per 10 high power fields i will be honest josh i have no idea what one high power field looks like but i guess if you speak to a pathologist they'll be able to tell you in great detail they would love a visit. I'm assuming they don't get too many visits from oncologists. Actually, they probably get a lot of calls from oncologists. A lot of calls, but always visit your friendly pathologists because they're generally lovely people. That's it. So last time we talked about the first-line treatment with a somatostatin analogue, most commonly lanreotide, with the clarinet study, and also the advent of radionucleotide treatment with PRRT, which had one of the most impressive hazard ratios uh, for progression-free survival we've ever had on this show, less than 0.2, beating luminaries like osimertinib and trastuzumab deruxtecan. Today, though, we're going to look at a couple of treatment options that have much less efficacy, unfortunately, but these are treatments that can be used after the failure of somatostatin analogues, if you don't have access to PRRT in Everolimus and Sinitinib. So Josh, why don't you kick us off with Everolimus? 
music to my ears, Dr. Michael Fernando. Thank you so much. Clarinet music. Clarinet. I know. I, next time I have to get you to bring your clarinet on. It's such a such a really enticing instrument when you're trying to impress people. <laughs> yes, I often break it out at parties when I I also bring my bassoon out when, when I want when I want to get um, kicked out immediately. <laughs> That's it. And Michael, as we all know, does not like parties. So <laughs> moving on to our trial, Everolimus for the treatment of advanced non-functional neuroendocrine tumors of the lung or gastrointestinal tract. This trial was labeled Radiant 4, a randomized placebo-controlled phase 3 study published in December of 2015. As a background, and we've already highlighted this, but effective systemic therapies for patients with advanced progressive nets of the lung or GI tract are scarce. This aimed to assess the efficacy and safety of Everolimus compared to placebo in that patient population. As a background, 27% of neuroendocrine tumors come from the lungs, 51% from the GI tract, and 6% from cancers. I suspect wherever you look in whatever published article, this data is going to fluctuate, but you can look at where the majority come from, and that's something you can use. Advanced neuroendocrine tumors are incurable in nearly all cases. The somatostatin analog, octreotide, was approved for control of hormone. Hormonal syndromes has been shown to delay disease progression in patients with previously untreated midgut nets. Recently, when I say recently, this trial was published in 2015, so recently to 2015, lanreotide, which we discussed in our previous episode, was shown to delay tumor growth in patients with mostly stable advanced enteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So although targeted therapies such as Everolimus and Sinitinib are approved for advanced pancreatic nets, Michael, I'm not going to give too much away, for which both drugs have been associated with improved progression-free survival. Oh no, I just did. These agents are not approved in advanced lung or progressive GI tract neuroendocrine tumors. <laughs> So, Josh, you've got me on an emotional roller coaster over here. I know, I know. It's the dangling of the carrots. Everolimus, from a mechanism perspective, it's a potent oral inhibitor of the mammalian target of rapamycin, mTOR, which has previously been shown to be associated with anti tumor activity and advanced non pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Let's go to the methods. I'm just going to jump. This was an international, multi-center, randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, phase 3 study done at 97 centers in 25 countries, inclusion criteria, adult patients, pathologically confirmed, advanced, unresectable or metastatic, non-functioning, well-differentiated grade 1 or grade 2 neuroendocrine tumors of the lung or GI origin were eligible to be included within this study. Additional inclusion criteria included measurable disease based on CT or MRI, a WHO performance status of 0 or 1, and adequate bone, liver, and kidney function. Patients previously treated with somatostatin analogs, interferon, woof, interferon, Mikey, rough, one line of chemotherapy, peptide receptor radionucleotide therapies, or a combination of these were eligible to enroll in disease if disease progression was documented during or after their last treatment. So, Michael, that's really nice. We know these are advanced and later line. So this study is 
essentially targeting those that have gone through known standard of care therapies. I, I agree, Josh. I think that it's good that this is, um, as we always say, these studies are best or most easily applicable when they are studied in the uh, context that they'll be used in the wider term. So I like that. I think this is good. You heard it here first, approved by Dr. Michael Fernando on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. He gets his stamp of approval. Moving on to randomization, uh, they'll randomize and stratify it according to prior somatostatin analog use, defined as continuous somatostatin analog treatment for greater than first 12 weeks, tumor origin grouped into two strata, uh, so the better prognoses like appendix, cecum, jejunum, ileum, duodenum, or the neuroendocrine tumors of unknown primary versus B, which was the lung, stomach, colon, including the rectum, and a WHO performance status of 0 to 1. So that's kind of their stratification. So 205 patients were randomized to Everolimus 10 milligrams per day, and 97 patients were randomized to placebo. I believe this was a 2 to 1 ratio uh, versus best supportive care. So remember, later-line therapies, this isn't actually an intervention arm in the control arm. They're assessed based on CT and MRI every 8 weeks for the first 12 months, and then 12 weeks thereafter. Looking at the breakdown of the demographics, which I always do love, uh, women predominated in the Everolimus and men predominated in the placebo. Predominant sites included lung, ileum, rectum, and then an unknown primary of at least 10% in both arms. Interesting time from initial diagnosis to randomization, about 40% of both arms were greater than 36 months. So they'd been alive for at least three years with this disease. Previous treatments, which Michael's already quizzed me about on our previous episode, surgery in about 60 and 70% respectively, chemotherapy in about 25% of both arms, radioactive nucleotides, which we mentioned, so 22 and 20%, and local regional or ablative therapies in 10% approximately, and somatostatin analogs in about 50%. So you know a lot of these guys have had pretty good standard of care therapies. Disease sites, so metastatic disease sites, 80% was liver, 40% was lymph nodes, and then 22% approximately was the lungs. And then they've gone through a liver tumor burden, which is quite interesting, and less than 10% was about over 50% of each of these. The primary endpoint, making sure I don't yak on too much, the lyrical waxing, Michael, I like to use, lyrical waxing. Your voice (laughs) is very waxing. (laughs) not lyrical. The primary endpoint was a central radiology-assessed progression-free survival. So assigned to progression-free survival, overall survival was the main secondary endpoint, and other secondary endpoints was objective response rate, disease control, health-related quality of life, and safety in a smattering of smaller things that we probably don't have time to go into. So patients were recruited between 2012 and 2013, and they were divided in that two to one um, ratio. The most common sites of tumor origin was lung, ileum, and rectum, which I've already mentioned. A data cutoff in 2014, 76% of the Everolimus group and 87% of the placebo group had discontinued study treatment. Common reasons included disease progression, adverse events, and withdrawal of consent. The juicy part. 
We should label this just the juicy part. The juicy part. So medium progression for yeah, survival. Our listeners know exactly what you're going to be talking about when you say yeah. the juicy part. Or at That's least I hope be they do. My next research article. Here's the juicy part. Please stay tuned. The medium progression free survival for Everolimus was 11 months versus 3.9 months in placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.48. And that was central radiology review. The median progression free survival for the local radiology review was 14 months versus 5.5 months with a difference of 8.5 months and a hazard ratio of 0.39 micro. So that's still pretty good irrespective of the difference between those two assessments. The estimated progression PFS at 12 months was 44% in Everolimus versus 28% in the placebo group, um, which is good. Again, it's placebo. The first overall survival analysis was done showing a favorable profile for Everolimus with a 36% reduction at the estimated risk of death versus placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.64, but I don't believe it was statistically significant at that time. And if you look at the estimation of median o- overall survival of the kaplan my curves at the 25th percentile is 23.7 months in the Everolimus versus 16.5 months in the placebo arm so confirmed objective response rate which is another thing people like to talk about was complete objective response was two percent or four patients in the Everolimus and one percent in the placebo don't understand how that worked disease stabilization with the best overall response in the 165 patients or the Everolimus was 81% versus 64% in the placebo arm. Therefore, prolongation in the progression-free survival of Everolimus was probably secondary to stabilization of the disease or minor tumor shrinkage and a few cases of progressive disease. Of the patients that could be assessed for tumor shrinkage, so 64% in the Everolimus arm and 26% in the placebo group had some degree of tumor shrinkage, but still not bad. So there was 117 patients in that Everolimus arm that you could see a tumor shrinkage. With a median follow-up of 21 months, the median duration of treatment was twice as long in the Everolimus group than the placebo arm, so 40.4 versus 19.6 weeks, which is quite good. And if you then look at the forest plot, you found most arms favored Everolimus versus placebo, which you would hope, and that includes lung and GI. The unknown primary crossed that confidence interval, but again, quite a small number of patients, so only 36 patients in that cohort. We found also Caucasian individuals or white that did cross that confidence interval as well. Unsure exactly why, but that was something else to look at. And then you've got the swimmer's bot. I do love a swimmer's bot, Michael. This is on page eight of our article, and it shows... Predominant patients had some form of tumor shrinkage of at least, you know, 10% and far fewer in the placebo arm. Although interesting, you still had a tumor shrinkage in the placebo arm. So I think as a summary, a very long-winded summary, Michael, Everolimus, as compared to placebo, was associated with statistically significant and clinically meaningful prolongation of progression-free survival in patients with advanced, progressive, non-functioning lung or GI neuroendocrine tumors. The first interim overall survival suggested a trend towards benefit, but was not statistically significant. Josh, one thing that you haven't really mentioned is toxicity uh, of Everolimus. Which, do you have any uh, extra information that you'd like to uh, discuss about that? Yeah, I would love to, and thank you for bringing that up. So very few patients had grade 4 
um, AEs, but there was a couple that had diarrhea, fatigue, infections, and nausea. But predominantly, it was grade one or grade two stomatitis, diarrhea, rash, fatigue, kind of all sat in the 15% and above for the grade one and grade two. And then some people got a cough and some hyperglycemia that was quite low. And of course, placebo is placebo. So I'm not actually going to go through that arm. But as a summary, Everolimus appears to be quite a well-tolerated and beneficial drug in the later line of treatment for neuroendocrine tumors that are well differentiated that have metastasized as well and i think that's really really the summary michael a very good summary of everolimus and neuroendocrine tumor definitely an option and it's worth noting that the nccn guidelines have everolimus as a category one option after progression on lanreotide for low-grade neuroendocrine tumor so definitely something that you can reach for the main competitor to Everolimus is sunitinib. Now, sunitinib is a medication that has come up a couple of times on this podcast. It is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor with targets to VEGF, platelet-derived growth factor receptors, and the CKIT stem cell factor receptor. So it's a broad-spectrum receptor inhibitor. The main evidence for sunitinib in neuroendocrine tumour, specifically pancreatic neuroendocrine tumours, or PNETs, comes from a study published by Raymond et al. in 2011. So we're going even further back, Josh, than 2015. Sunitinib is quite an old drug. It has been around for a while. But at the time of the publication, streptozosin and doxorubicin were the only chemotherapeutic agents approved for advanced unresectable pancreatic neck. Now, I've certainly never used doxorubicin for neuroendocrine tumours, Josh, and I've never heard of streptozosin before I started reading up for this week's episode. Have you ever used or heard of either of those agents in the neuroendocrine tumour space? I have not. I, it's been a while since I've treated neuroendocrine and I have zero recollection of ever, ever having much engagement with either of these drugs in this space. Yeah. I think that that, it, that uh, most people practicing uh, and treating neuroendocrine tumors these days would uh, say the same. In 2011, there wasn't very much evidence for uh, survival benefit, either progression-free or overall survival benefits for somatostatin analogs. Little did we know that that would be coming a few short years later. The Clarinet study was actually recruiting at the time that this study was published. So VEGF is a key driver of angiogenesis in pancreatic net, and histological samples have also expressed uh, platelet-derived growth factor receptors and CKIT, which, as mentioned before, are sites of activity for sunitinib. There was phase one and phase two data suggesting clinical benefit of sunitinib, so naturally someone decided to get a phase three study together, which is what this paper was. So this study, as mentioned, enrolled patients with pancreatic net only. And pancreatic net is currently the only thing for which sunitinib is approved. You can't use it for midgut nets, you can't use it for lung nets, uh, at least not on label. There are 171 patients in this uh, study and they were randomised one-to-one to receive either sunitinib or matching placebo. A couple of notes on the intervention arm. The sunitinib dose was 37.5 milligrams every day, but if patients had toxicity, 
treatment interruptions and a dose reduction to 25 milligrams a day were permitted. If the patients got to eight weeks, they had their first staging scan and there was no tumour response, they could potentially increase it to 50 milligrams daily. Now, the majority of patients did have 37 and a half milligrams daily. I don't think many people actually got up to 50 milligrams in this study. But there is a wide range of doses being allowed for a phase three study where the dose is fairly set in stone at this point. The key inclusion criteria, patients couldn't be, could not have disease that was amenable to surgery. They had to have progressive disease in the last 12 months and they had to have an ECOG performance status of zero to one. Key inclusion criteria, patients could not have poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinoma. As we will see in a later episode, that is a completely different clinical entity. They could not have previously been treated with TKIs or VEGF inhibitors, and they could not have cardiac history, such as an acute cardiac event, prolonged QTC interval, or any other cardiac dysrhythmia, or pulmonary embolism in the last 12 months. For those who have used sunitinib a fair amount, we know that uh, cardiac toxicity and um, thrombotic events are rare but important side effects of sunitinib. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoints were overall survival, overall response rate, time to tumour response, duration of response safety, and quality of life. We'll go through only a few of those today in the interest of time. But now to, as Josh called it, the juicy part. The median duration of treatment for sunitinib was 4.6 months versus 3.7 months. So we are talking Michael, about... is that juicy? Tell me, I need to know. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. This is this is confirmed the juicy part. It is very juicy. It's not that juicy. We are looking at relatively short intervals of treatment, so less than five months in both arms. Not that great when you're looking at unresectable, untreatable, or metastatic disease. The progression-free survival was eleven point four versus five point five months, with a hazard ratio of zero point four two. And this is one of those times where the hazard ratio is great but that's mainly because the baseline is not so great. So you can see why sunitinib has fallen down a few rungs on the old treatment scale. At six months, 71% of patients had not progressed in the sunitinib arm compared to 43% in the control arm. The benefit was consistent across most subgroups. The exceptions to this or questions, you know, where the forest plot crosses one are patients with extrahepatic disease, so metastatic disease beyond the liver greater than or equal to two previous treatment regimens, which is obviously important given how sunitinib is currently used, functioning tumours, and a key 67 of greater than 5%. So while you can't take any hard and fast rules from this, there are questions that arise from heavily pretreated patients with a tumour biology on the higher end of intermediate grade. The Overall survival hazard ratio was 0.41, so there is definitely a benefit of sunitinib, but again, this is compared to placebo. In terms of safety of sunitinib, 30% of patients had one or more dose interruptions. The most common adverse events were neutropenia at 12%, diarrhea at 10%, hypertension at 7%, thrombocytopenia at 6%. 17% of patients see sunitinib due to adverse events. And the most common adverse events that led to cessation were diarrhea and cardiac failure. In terms of quality of life scores, there was no difference with sunitinib compared to placebo. So that's the juicy bit, Josh. 
in, in summary, sunitinib is an effective treatment for patients with pancreatic low to intermediate grade neuroendocrine tumor. If you're taking these results at face value, you're going to get the best benefit in the first or second line. But I guess I would argue that because of advances since 2011, there are more effective treatments. So really, sunitinib is only used or is only worth using when you have exhausted lanreotide, PRT if you've got access to it. And then, you know, as Josh has mentioned, it's sort of a bit of a toss up between uh, sunitinib and everolimus. And obviously with sunitinib, it can be a pretty dirty drug. We have, we've all had patients who haven't really tolerated sunitinib very well. So you need always to be aware of the toxicity and discuss it with your patients. So Josh, to summarise the episode at large, Everolimus and sunitinib, both category one options on the NCCN guidelines after lanreotide, but neither of them really taking the shine away from something like radionucleotide treatment. Michael, that's a very nicely worded summary and there was some juiciness not as juicy as we like here on oncology for think because of mine i think we're going to retire the word juicy uh for our next episode yes josh has officially ruined the word juicy <laughs> like so many words it's, it's interesting as i scour the nccn guidelines live ladies and gentlemen a lot of them you know you're right it's kind of the progression is sort of a bit of a choose your own adventure but we also very much have to highlight the option for potential trials if your site has any or if there's a local or even drivable or flyable site for sort of a potential trial in your area would be something to consider given a lot of these treatments are quite old and you know genetic testing and molecular testing wasn't as done back in the day and there might be other things that you can actually use to delay going to sunitinib or going to everolimus and uh, that's, uh, I guess, the other tidbit to just add. Absolutely. And I think that's a very important tidbit to add, Josh. I have had a couple of patients with neuroendocrine tumour who have gone through a, a number of trials before they've gone for sunitinib and everolimus. So it's very important to consider and realise that, as you say, these are old drugs and you never know what's around the corner in the trials you're in. Which is ironic when we call it old drugs, Michael, because things like metoprolol and covidolol and all these drugs are, are, are ancient, right? <laughs> Aspirin, <laughs> codeine, yeah. And we're like, oh, it's five years old. This is this is old. We need something better. Uh, that's the beauty of oncology. So that's why we love it. That's how we roll in oncology. Josh, we're halfway through our neuroendocrine odyssey. Would you like to uh, reveal what we're going to be talking about next week? I am the revealer. So we, I don't know. We, I do know actually. So we, with the neuroendocrine tumors, we'll be discussing well-differentiated grade three tumors. So these are the more aggressive type. We're going to be talking about treatment options, including the classic chemotherapy trials. You know, how do they compare? Do they have any role in neuroendocrine tumors? But stay tuned and we will see you next week. See you then. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. 
That's inquisitiveonk.com. <laughs>